Good to see you here at our five o'clock service. How many people were able to be with us last week with Robert Sledden? Did you enjoy it? It was a, it was a great testimony. And uh, I was speaking to him afterwards because it's been a long time since he shared that testimony. But it was powerful, very powerful. And of course, it's on the internet. And it's, it's a good link to give somebody who doesn't know the Lord. And of course, some people, a lot of people were buying the DVD straight after the service um, to give them uh, as gifts to people because it's such a powerful evangelistic tool. Well, the Christmas program is nearly upon us, and that means that leaves us with two more teaching services uh, in this year. So we have today, and I'm going to be looking at um, Jesus, the Son of God, and then next Sunday, I'm going to be uh, teaching on the doctrine of the incarnation, when God became man, the Word became flesh. And then the next two Sundays, at the 5 o'clock and 7 o'clock, the Sunday after that, we have concerts, uh, Christmas concerts. We'll have a 5 o'clock Christmas concert and a 7 o'clock Christmas concert. And then the Sunday after that, which will be the Sunday before Christmas, we have a 5 o'clock carol concert and a seven o'clock carol concert. And so that's what will be happening coming up to Christmas. Then in the new year, I will be starting a new series. And the series that um, we've decided that I, I will teach is on the end times. That's right. I remember when I spoke a little bit about the rapture, I could see everybody getting excited in their seats. And I thought, okay, well then that's what we'll do. So we are going to be starting the year in the end times. And as I said, the wonderful thing about the teaching service, you don't have to cram everything in to two weeks or even four weeks. You go until you've taught it thoroughly. So um, I think that's going to be a good way to start the, uh, the year. I'm looking forward to that. So welcome. Wonderful to have you here. Also, welcome to those of you that are joining us on the internet. 150 of you joined us last week for Robert Sladen. And I know many of you do join us either live right now from the, the comfort of your homes. I wish it was from the comfort of these seats, but that's just me wanting more support here. But it's wonderful to have you online. But also I know that some of you can't be here because of families and children, and, and you've explained that. That's cool. But uh, many of you also will be joining us throughout the week because we have these series. I know people that um, around the world get in touch and say, oh, yeah, we're going through your teaching series here. And that's the beautiful thing about the Internet and the wonderful thing about Kensington Temple's media section. Every, all the services that we do are not only broadcast live on a Sunday, but they're also put there for people to watch at their leisure later on. And you ever want to see what the five o'clock service series have been, then if you go onto KT website, kt.org, and go to the media section, press media, and then scroll down to where it says series. If you press on the series, you'll get all of the series. And it means you don't have to go from week to week. You can just go. It's all there. Um, however many we've done. The Sermon on the Mount is all there. And then, of course, Beyond Death, which we finished with Robert's Led and last Sunday. Well, I thought in these two Sundays before the Christmas concert and the Christmas carol service that I would look at two of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. Uh, Jesus as the Son of God and the Incarnation, the Word made flesh. Now, sometimes we can be I think, over-familiar about these two truths. And so I want to come at them in a slightly different way than normal. You know, 10, 15 years ago, if I was teaching on the truth that Jesus is the Son, the only begotten Son of God, we would just teach it and wouldn't think much about it. It's just another doctrine to teach. But I've noticed our own senior minister, Colin Dye, over the last few weeks and months mentioning that if there's one doctrine in the Christian church that is being discussed more than ever in London today, it's this doctrine, it's this teaching, it's this truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And he, and he said, and you know where they're discussing it? In the mosques. Because the truth of the proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God is one of the most repugnant truths of the gospel uh, that Islam 
uh, fines. And so if you spend time with Muslim friends, or if you're debating or going up on Hyde Corner, sooner or later, they're going to attack the truth of the Son of God. And that's not just because that's one particular doctrine they don't like. The fact that Jesus is the Son of God is central to our Christian faith. If you took out the proclamation that Jesus was the Son of God from the New Testament, you would have no Christian faith. The truth that Jesus is the Son of God affects every single other Christian truth. If Jesus is not the Son of God, then who was it that died on the cross? It doesn't really matter. If Jesus wasn't the Son of God, even if he was raised from the dead, it doesn't matter. But the fact that Jesus is the, only, is the Son of the living God is very important. Remember that key revelation that Peter had? Just before Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, he said this, who do men say I am? And then he had all these opinions. Oh, some say you're a prophet, some say you're a teacher, some say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, but who do you say I am? Jesus wasn't happy with those um, definitions, even though some of them were, were quite near the mark. He was a prophet, but he wasn't happy. He said, but who do you say I am? And uh, we know don't we, that Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus didn't respond and say, well, that's another opinion. Thank you, Peter. Anybody else? Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father, he was speaking as a son, my Father in heaven has declared this to you. Think about the great revelation when the Father, who sent his Son into the earth to reveal himself and to show the way of the Father, do you remember on occasion even the Father broke into the earth realm? Do you remember on the baptism of Jesus with John? The Father, because normally the Father lets the Son speak on his behalf because he's giving everything to the Father and the Father doesn't speak unless he's heard. Sorry, he's given everything to the Son and the Son doesn't speak lest he's heard it from the Father. But at the baptism, we heard this voice from heaven saying, this is my in whom I'm well pleased. And then think of the other time when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration and Elijah was there and Moses were there and they wanted to build tabernacles and tents and uh, again, God's voice broke through. And what did the Father say? He said, this is my beloved in whom, oh sorry, listen to him. So isn't that amazing, the testimony of the scripture, when the Father himself speaks from heaven. He doesn't normally do that. His son speaks on his behalf. But the times when he does, he speaks and he says, my son, I'm his Father. And so this is a very important doctrine and teaching for us today. But let me quote from the Quran to see, because so, I'm setting this in a background of, of the Son of God being attacked by other faiths. The Quran says this in Surah 5, that's like a chapter, uh, Surah 5, um, 88 to 92, Surah 5, 88 to 92. This is the Quran speaking. They say, the most gracious has betaken a son. Indeed, you have put forth a thing most monstrous. As it in the sky, at it in the skies are about to burst, the earth to split asunder, and the mountains to fall down in utter ruin, that they attributed a son to the most gracious, for it is not consonant with the majesty of the most gracious that he should beget a son. So there we see the Quran. But I tell you what, you read 1 John chapter 2, verse 20 to 24, and you will see a statement, the direct opposite. First letter of John, verse 20 following. Listen to this. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know I have not written to you because you did not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. 
Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. You couldn't have two more contrasting pieces of literature, could you? The Quran statement and the New Testament statement in total opposition to one another. In fact, the letter of John says, quite clearly, it's not my statement, it's what we just read, that this is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. When will people learn that all religions do not point to the same God? That one religion worships one God, another a different God, we're all worshiping the same God, we are not. Scripture's testimony is clearly, utterly opposed in, and in conflict with the uh, statement from the Quran. So this is important for us. I want to look a little bit at the meaning of the Son of Man, God because I want you to, uh, to have, did I say Son of Man? I meant Son of God. The term Son of God is used in many different ways in the Bible, not just about Jesus. We'll come to Jesus being the unique Son of God in a moment, but from a background we see that uh, sons of God is often used in a general terms. So the people chosen by God are often terms as the sons of God. Exodus chapter 4 verse 22 and uh, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 9, uh, Hosea 11 verse 1. You can look up these scriptures in your own time. I'm just making general principles here. But sons of God, God's people are often called sons of God in the sense that he is in a relationship with them, the children of Israel. Also, secondly, we find that heavenly beings can also be called and termed the sons of God. Job chapter 1 and verse 6, speaking about angelic beings, referred to them as sons of God. We know that um, in Genesis there's a section that speaks about the angels coming down. This was before the flood and having relationships with women. Um, that were, were, where the descendants of the Nephilim would come, a very strange and odd passage. But there the angels are termed sons of God. So sometimes it's a loose phrase for the angelic host. Also kings and rulers can be called sons of God in 2 Samuel verse 7 and 14. In Psalm chapter 2 and verse 7, Jesus would even refer when they were saying, you make yourself equal with God by calling yourself sons of God, and he referred to the scriptures and the Psalms that said, ye are gods, not speaking of us being divine, of course, but speaking of this relationship where God can call people sons. Pious or godly individuals are sometimes called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. And so we see in the scriptures that there is a loose way of using this term sons of of God. Of course, we in Galatians chapter 3 verse 26, we who believe are also sons of God. We're adopted into God's family when we believe in the son of God and everything he claims, we also, male or female, become a son of God by faith because we are in Christ. Of course, um, even uh, some Muslims, the Sufis, speak as God as father and humanity as God's children. So some Muslims use this term as God as the father and, and humans as their family. Uh, they still prefer to use the term servant instead of son, but that is there. It's, it's compatible with some thinking of Muslims. But to equate the sonship of Jesus with this type of general use of sonship, would be denying the plain truth of what Scripture teaches and the very essence of Christian faith. Jesus is more than one of God's chosen people. 
He's more than just one of his heavenly messengers or prophets. He's more than one who, like those kings, rules on God's behalf on earth. And he's more than someone, as in the Sermon on the Mount, who's a peacemaker and pleases God, although he's all of those also. Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is the only begotten Son of the living God. And so when we begin to look at the Scriptures and the Gospels, we find that this truth and this proclamation is right at the heart of the Gospel presentation of Jesus as the Son of God. We know, and next week I'll be speaking a little bit more on the Word made flesh, how God became man, but we also know that Jesus was a man born of a woman. But that woman was a virgin, the Virgin Mary. He was born of a woman. So Mary was his earthly mother, but who was Jesus' father? Well, it wasn't Joseph. Joseph adopted him. Jesus' father was his, was his father in heaven. There's, there's a good um, article in the Revival Times by Charles Spurgeon, a great preacher of London. It's in the Christmas edition where Charles Spurgeon speaks about the fact that a child has been born at Christmas, Jesus, but a son has been given. All right? What does that mean? A son has been given. Jesus was the son of God before he was born of the Virgin Mary. Jesus was the word. In the beginning, the word already existed. And the word was with God. And the word was God. And then later on, the word became flesh. So Jesus was always the son of God. The proclamation of the Bible is that, that God is one but three. You see, how can God be one, but also three? Because he's God. If someone was to say to me, it's impossible for God to be one and three, I would say nothing's impossible for God. God could be one and 20. God can be whatever God can be. And if you say that it's impossible for God to be one and three, then I don't want your God. He's too small. God can be whoever he wants to be. And whoever he is, is who he is. And so we find that Jesus was always, he was eternally begotten. He was always. And of course, when we talk about God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it's, it's God showing us in a, in a way that our human minds can understand. No man can properly understand God. No woman can properly understand God. God, and God brings to us ways that we can understand him. And one of the key ways of knowing God is Father and Son. It's their relationship between the Father and the Son, that is such a self-disclosure of what God is like. Now, Jesus was born of a virgin. Now, this is important because the Quran also states that Jesus was born of a virgin. Did you know that? So, the Quran states that Jesus was born of a virgin. You say, why is that important? Because often, Muslims will come and say to you, God does not have a son. God would not have sexual relationships with a woman. And they accuse, in their popular um, attacking, they accuse many Muslims, uh, accuse them and say, you're saying that God had sexual relationships with a woman. No, we're not. And not even your Quran states that Jesus was born of sexual relationships. Because the Quran states that Jesus was born of a virgin. And in the Quran it says, and if you should question, me paraphrasing, if you should question how a woman can give birth to a, a, a son as a virgin, God is able to do anything. So remember that, that if ever you come across somebody attacking and saying, you Christians are teaching that, um, that God had sexual rela relationships with a woman, we're not teaching that. Jesus was born of a virgin, and even their own Quran states that. I think that's an important point. But as I've said, Jesus' sonship doesn't rest on the fact that he was born of a virgin, because before Mary ever was, the Son of God is. He never became the Son of God. He always was 
the Son of God. The eternal Son of God entered into the limitations of time and space by the power of the Holy Spirit, Spirit working through the Virgin Mary and was born as a man called Jesus in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. Also, of course, Jesus' works witness to his sonship. I mean, like I said, you take away anything to do with father and son from the New Testament, there's hardly anything left. Jesus' whole work, his whole witness, was one of a son's obedience to his father. John 8, 37 to 47. He said, I'm doing my father's will. I'm doing my father's work. John 10, verse 37. Listen to this. He says, if I am not acting as my father would, do you not believe me? But if I am, accept the evidence of my deeds even if you do not believe in me, so that you recognize and know that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus says, I am doing the works of my Father. This is one of the main motifs of John's Gospel. When you read John's Gospel, I mean, one of the main uh, things that comes across is that Jesus is the Son of God. I don't do anything lest I see my Father do it. I don't speak of my own, but I come to speak of what my Father has spoken. Jesus' understanding of who he was was that he was the Son, the only begotten Son of the living God. So not only did Jesus' own words, especially, it's all there in the other Gospels, but especially it's heavy, it's strong, it's the big discussion. You can't read John's Gospel without the overwhelming opinion of Christ himself that I am, he said, the Son of God. That's who I understand myself. Everything I am, everything I say, everything my, I do, Jesus is saying, is in relationship to my Father. You pull that out of the Bible, what have you got left? Nothing. Everything else falls. But as well as the evidence of his works, if you don't believe my words, then believe my works. Every time God does a miracle through the gospel, he's proclaiming, this is my son. But of course, we have other witnesses. We have the Annunciation. The, in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, the angel Gabriel told the Virgin Mary that her, that her son would be called the Son of God. I've already mentioned in Matthew 3, verse 17, the baptism, that God the Father proclaimed from heaven, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And Mark 9, 7, the transfiguration, God's voice once again, this is my son whom I love, listen to him. At the crucifixion, the Roman centurion and his men confessed at the time of the crucifixion in Matthew 7, 27, 54. They said, surely he was the son of God. And I've mentioned Matthew 16, 16, that incredible divine revelation of Peter when he said, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. I mean, he could have said, you are the King. He could have just said, you're the Christ. He could have said many things about who, you're the healer, couldn't he? You're the teacher. He could have said many things, but he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said, that revelation is so pure, so pure, it's from the throne of heaven. Because he was a prophet. He was a teacher, and some people had seen that in him. But it takes the revelation of the Father to show us that Jesus is the Son of the living God. At the resurrection, Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, Romans 1, 4, that the resurrection from the dead declared him to be the Son of God. The fact that Jesus was raised from the dead meant that all his claims were true. He must have been the Son of God. 
Because when he died, the father didn't leave him in the grave, but the father did what he promised to his son. He raised him from the dead as the firstborn of all creation. Now, firstborn simply means as, as the inheritor, the, the heir. The firstborn was always the one that inherited. And now we who believe in Jesus, we too become sons of God by faith. Not divine, but we become part of God's family in him. The, uh, even madmen and unclean spirits confess to Jesus, we know who you are. You are the son of God. Have you seen that in the Gospels? I always used to think about that. I remember at university studying that, thinking, well, that's strange. Why would demons be doing that? Well, if I was a demon, I'd be saying, you're nobody, you're not from God. But the demons were saying, we know who you are. And they were correct, you are the Son of God. And Jesus said, shut up. Why? Two reasons. Number one, he doesn't need testimony from the demons. Do you remember that woman who was a sorceress in, in Acts? And she said to Paul, this is the man who has got words of salvation. Listen to him. And Paul cast that devil out of her. Why? Because she was trying to get in on the act. Because afterwards they'd say, oh, isn't that great? Paul had the words of salvation. And isn't she great? Because she told us and bore witness that it was true. So that's wonderful. We've got a wonderful sorceress and a wonderful God. And so Jesus shut them up because he didn't need, but at the same time he shut them up because, it, because he also, during his ministry, as well as proclaiming himself as the Son of God, there were times when he kept it quiet. That's why he referred off to himself as the Son of Man. Isn't that wonderful? He's the Son of God. He's fully God. He's the Son of Man. He's fully man. He's the Son of Man, the Son of God. So, but those demons knew they didn't say, we know who you are, a teacher. We know you are who you are, a prophet. We know who you are. He was all those things. He said, we know who you really are. You're the son of God. Have you come to torment us before our time? They understood that he wasn't just Jesus, son of carpenter. He wasn't just Jesus of Nazareth. They knew his power was that he was the son of God. That's the power of Jesus, my friends. No wonder the devil wants to attack this truth because he knows his time is short and he knows that it's because Jesus is the Son of God that means everything that he says is true and carries divine authority from heaven, that his father backed him up, that he was the representation of his father in heaven, and that whoever, as John said, believes that Jesus is the Son of God, they shall be saved. It's a saving truth. We know that the devil tempted him, and when the devil tempted him, he also understood the power of his sonship, divine sonship. In Matthew chapter 4, 3, it says, when Jesus was famished, after a long time, the tempter said to him, if you are the son of God, not if you're the teacher, not even if you're the Christ, although he was. If you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Interesting, isn't it? And then also, he was mocked on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 40. When Jesus was in agony on the cross, the passerbys mocked him and said, Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. Of course, they were trying to mold the Son of God into their own image. They didn't realize that the Son of God had come to suffer and to die. I mean, even Peter we know. Isn't it funny how it was the revelation from the Father to Peter that he was the Son of God, but the very next thing that came out of Peter's words were, was a false understanding of what the Son of God would do. In fact, so false it was demonic. One moment, you're the Christ, the Son 
of the living God. The next moment, you shall not die on the cross. Get behind me, Satan. So, there was this, under, this misunderstanding of his sonship. He was the servant son. He didn't come to exert himself, but came to be obedient um, to, to his father. And when we look at the relationship between the father and the son, we see that Jesus obeyed his father perfectly. He was obedient, Philippians tells us, obedient even unto death. He didn't think that being God was something to be held on to or to be grasped or robbery in the old days. Didn't, didn't think it, didn't grasp, I, I'm the son, I'm not going down there, I might lose my authority and my power. But he took himself and in, emptied himself in form of a servant, came to earth, was born of a virgin, and was obedient to his father even unto death. Father, if there's any other way than the cross, if there's any other way, if, if, if this cup of poison can pass, but not my will, Father, be done, but yours be done. He was, his whole life was about sonship. Everything he did was to his Father. You know, we thank God for everything Jesus did for us, he, he died for us. He, on the earth, he brought healing, he brought deliverance, he brought freedom. But don't think that Jesus' focus was on us. We're us, so we're glad we feel like it. His primary focus of his ministry was not on you and I. Does that shock you? His primary focus was on obeying the Father. That was his primary focus. And thank God that the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus just said, just show me what to do, Father. Of course, he, he loves us, blessed us, focused on the needy, but his primary focus was on his sonship, and, and, and his father. And his father gave all judgment to the son. In John chapter 5, verse 22, quote, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Only the son can give life as the father gives life. In John chapter 5, verse 21, for as the father has life in himself, so he's granted the son to have life in himself. The son is obedient to the father with the will of the father uh, showing the way to the son. So there is a sharing of power, a sharing of authority, of knowledge, of glory. Glorify your son. I have glorified you, father. The father glorifies the son. The son glorifies the father. And aren't you glad that they both sent the spirit Otherwise, if they didn't send the Spirit, the Father would have the Son, and the Son would have the Father up there in heaven. But what about us down on earth? Well, the Spirit comes and brings us into the relationship of the Father and the Son. We're loved by the Father now through Christ as much as the Son is loved. And the Son has paid the, the way for us to boldly enter into the Father's presence as if we were Jesus himself. We don't deserve to approach the Father as if we were Jesus himself. But Jesus paid the price and gave us the free gift of his Father. Isn't that wonderful? That the Father loves us as much as he loves his only begotten Son. And when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in your sin. He sees you in Christ, in his Father. You're clothed in Christ. So the moment you lift your hands to the Father, he will listen to you, in, even in your failings and your frailty. The moment you lift your hands to the Father, he will listen to you as he listens to his own Son. Not because of your stinking righteousness, 
but because of the righteousness of Christ, for the Bible declares that we are the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Thank God for the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit brings it all into reality in our lives. Hallelujah. God is indeed Trinity. So, we know right at the beginning of Hebrews that uh, it says, the book of Hebrews says, in former times, God revealed himself through the prophets of old. But in these days, I'm going to read it actually. It's so powerful. I'm not even, I'm, just, I'm not going to quote it, misquote it. I'm just going to read it. Hebrews chapter 1, begin. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in times past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he made the world also. That wonderful Jesus, the Son of God, creator who being the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of the Father's person and opening, upholding all things by the word of his power. For which to the angels later on did he ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten to you, begotten you. And again I'll be him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he brings again the firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and ministers a flame of fire. But to his son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness in the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness and more than your companions. What a beautiful insight to the relationship between the Father and the Son. No wonder the devil it doesn't like it. The devil doesn't like this truth because it's a saving truth. And um, the disciples, they grew in their understanding of Jesus as they witnessed his deeds and his words. They thought he was a teacher. They thought he was a prophet. But they began to ask them the questions, who is this man and where does he come from? They saw him feed the multitudes, heal the sick, control nature, raise the dead. They heard him forgive people, forgive people's sins. And the Pharisees said, only God can forgive sins. Yes, and his son. They heard him speak in a wisdom and, a, and, and an authority that wasn't like the scribes of the Pharisees. They heard him speak of the love of his father and his relationship with them. Peter confessed Jesus to the, be the Messiah and the Son of God. You know, it's interesting, I've already mentioned that in the Quran it speaks of Jesus actually being born of a virgin. It also has many other titles of Jesus. And although it doesn't say Son of God, some of them are very close. Uh, the Quran in Surah 1930 uh, says that Jesus is the servant of God. In Surah 4 verse 157 it says... Jesus is the apostle or messenger of God. In Surah 4, 171, it says, He is the word of God. Isn't that amazing? Even the Quran understands that Jesus is the word of God and the, and the Muslims believe that the word of God is eternal. He is the servant of God, Surah 1930. So the Quran says that Jesus is the servant of God, the apostle of God, the word of God. And we could go, I'm not going to go through in those any details, but just to show the, the, these things. Let me, let, me, let me move on because I want to have some time for, um, for some uh, quest, questions. So I think just in this short time, I've just delivered to you how in the New Testament, I picked a few important scriptures, that Jesus being the Son of God is absolutely essential to our faith. 
It's not sort of like, well, you know, if Jesus is the Son of God or not the Son of God, should we argue the case? Does it matter? I mean, you know, we all worship. No, Jesus is the Son of God. And think of the things that he would say. I mean, I'm just picking them out of the, out of the sky. Well, not out of the sky, out of the Word of God. There's just so much there. It just keeps popping in. You know, show us the Father, says Thomas. Thomas, don't you know that if you have seen me, Jesus said, you have seen the Father. For no man can come to the Father except through the Son and those who believe in me. All, Matthew eleven twenty seven. all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal me. Don't you know me, Philip? John 14, 9. Even after I've been among you for such a long time, don't you know me? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Trust in God, trust also in me. Isn't that wonderful? Do you know what? I'm going to take some questions about the sonship right now. So if you've got any questions on this particular sermon, not one I preached 20 years ago or anything like that, but this particular sermon and this particular topic of father and son or trinity, you can put that in, then go ahead and uh, just lift your hand and we'll come to you and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take your questions. Okay, let's take the first one. Can we have all, the, all of them on now, thanks? Okay. What is it then that pre prevents them from actually believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Well, I only gave you one portion of the Quran at the beginning, but it was the one I read at the beginning, which said that, you know, those that say that God has a son are totally out of order. So the Quran does teach very strongly on a number of occasions that there is no way that God can have a son. So it teaches directly against it. But I gave you just some of those other things to show you that, that in other ways, the Quran does have a very high view of Jesus in other areas. I mean, as you know, the Muslims believe that Jesus was a, a prophet. An interesting point, I'm glad you raised that, because it's funny, we have God the Father and God the Son, don't we? And in Islam, you have Allah and his prophet Muhammad. So you have Jesus that rep represents the Father to us. The Son of God represents the Father to us. In these last days, God has spoken through his Son. But then you look at Islam, uh, which is modeled on certain Christian beliefs and certain Jewish beliefs, and you've got Allah now, not the Father, but Allah, and then you've got not his Son, but his servant, the prophet Muhammad. And so it's interesting how you can parallel the two, isn't it? And actually, sometimes... I mean, what one could say, I'm not saying it, but one could say that actually um, uh, the treatment of Muhammad could actually be seen almost idolatrous. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, we say that Jesus is the Son of God, but people are saying, blaspheming his name all over the world, don't we? aren't they? But you draw a cartoon and publish it. You draw a cartoon of Muhammad and you will get such reaction. Deaths can take place, fires. We've seen it happen. So although we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, you speak a word against the so-called prophet, or you just draw a diagram, even a nice diagram, and their reaction, you know, interesting, isn't it? Their reaction to that prophet, the way, the way that you can't say anything against him, and if you do, it, it, it will rise violence. And so... You know, the way that we love that, the Son of God and honor Jesus, because we believe he is God and he is the Son, but when they say it's idolatry, just the way that we worship Jesus, well, the way that Muslims treat Muhammad, interesting, isn't it? So thank you for that question. Next question. That's right. They pay a higher sort of um, 
honor to Muhammad. That's right. So where is Muhammad then? Why is Muhammad coming back? Why Jesus? Well, well that's a wonderful question. As you see, the, the Quran echoes many things in the scriptures. They echo the fact that Jesus will return. But as you correctly say, Muhammad is the prophet of, of God. I don't have much to say about that because you've said it. it, it's, it, it, just, it's, it yeah, exactly. They, I, think it, I think they find it hard to grasp who Jesus is. He's held with such honor. But then, of course, the main defining thing about Jesus that we've looked at today is that actually he's the son of God or is nothing. Next question. Hi Bruce. Hi. Uh, just based on what you were talking about, I believe that one way, a shortcut that will enable any Christian to win an argument would be probably to say that um, Islam was founded some five centuries after Christianity was first established as a belief system as following of Jesus Christ. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that um, Islam was founded back in um, 579 AD. Mm -hmm. So that in itself is a proof that it was fabricated, that it came after Christianity. Would you agree? Well, one of the interesting things is that the, the Bible has been scrutinized by every type of person you could think of, atheist, liberal. When I uh, went to university um, in 1987, you know, my first year was looking at some of these uh, dreadful well, I think they're dreadful now. Dreadful German theologians, no offense. Dreadful in the early, who were, who were like trying to demythologize de de the Bible, the Schleiermarkers and the Debaliuses and um, the Boltmans and tearing the Bible to a pieces. But, you know, bring it on. Because the word of God can defend itself. This is why we don't, we don't feel the need, or true Christians don't feel the need to act in violence when people blaspheme Jesus. Hey, they crucified our son of God. I mean, how much, you know, you can swear at him, you can blaspheme him, that's nothing. You crucified him and he raised from the dead. Jesus can defend himself. The word of God can defend himself. And so here we have today um, top scholars um, in different universities of the world, people with degrees like myself that defend the word as the word of God, but we're not afraid to engage. We're not afraid to have questions, but it's important for us to find out the answers. Now, one of the problems with the Quran at the moment is that there's extreme resistance for people to be allowed to scrutinize it in literary, literary criticism, looking at the history, history of it, because it, it seemed to be blasphemous. And so again, there's this protection that if you were to say anything about the Quran, to say that it was based on Jewish fables, or if you were to say anything like that, like some scholars do, then uh, you, you, you'd, be, you'd be careful about your safety. And so I think, you know, um, that just as the scriptures, come, come on, give your scriptures your best shot. You want to attack them? Show me. We're not afraid. We're not afraid of people attacking the Bible. All right? And so... I agree, I think all scriptures, from whatever religion they are, should be open to vigorous criticism. I'm speaking as a theologian. When I went to university, you didn't sit there and just take everything for granted. It was a subject of vigorous criticism. Why? That's what we need to do. The, the, mo the moment you, you don't allow your faith to be subject to vi vigorous criticism, then it makes me wonder, you know, what is your faith about? That's a very good question. Another question. Yeah, go ahead. Some people seem to treat Jesus referring to himself as the son of man as a title of humility, like I was just a man. However, it would appear that um, when he used the title son of man, he was referring back to the son of man in Daniel chapter 7, who is, was referred as the one coming in the clouds of glory and when when he's asked by the priests in Matthew 26 uh, and 63 um, he was it says Jesus kept silent and then the high priest answered and said to him I put you under oath by the living God tell us if you are the Christ the son of God but his answer was um, we now under oaths and he respected the authority of the high priest that it is as I said nevertheless I say to you hereafter you shall see the son of man 
sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And that is a direct quote from uh, Daniel 13. Um, and it would seem that when he calls himself the Son of Man, he's actually claiming a title of divinity. Well, remember, it was Stephen. What did he see at the right hand of the Father just before he stoned? He saw the Son of Man. Yes. Now, you're quite correct, quoting Daniel 7. The Son of Man is a divine statement. But Jesus, especially in Mark's Gospel, you see this very strong. Jesus at times preferred the Son of Man because it was ambiguous in its definition. So the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And, and so that one of the reasons he shut up the demons, saying, you know, don't call me Son of God, was because he wanted to reveal it at the correct time and in the, and in the right way. Um, and so the Son of Man is wonderful because, yes, it still has that heavenly touch, like you said, one like the Son of Man. But at the same time, it emphasizes his humanity. And in many ways, Jesus could make the Son of Man into himself. Do you know what I mean? It, the Son of God was very fixed in the Jewish mentality. So was the Messiah. That's why they kept thinking, kept trying to make Jesus king. They, in their minds, they thought, the Messiah, what does the Messiah do? Destroys the Romans, sets up an earthly kingdom. The Messiah is the son of David and its earthly kingdom. And so Jesus' use of the Son of Man allowed more freedom for him to develop who he was into that title, as well as it having that powerful background. So yes, it's a wonderful study, not only to, to do, if this wasn't Christmas, then maybe next week, and we were looking at the doctrine of who Jesus was, it would it'd always be good to teach the Son of God, and then the Son of Man. Because when you look at the Son of Man and look at the Son of God, you have a wonderful balance and insight into who Jesus understood himself. Very good, very good points and very good question. Wonderful. Well, we're going to hold it there. But it, you, you like asking questions, don't you? And they're, 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 they're good questions. And even if they were bad questions, they'd be good questions because no question's a bad question unless it's a rude question. <laughs> so we'll, we'll try and do this um, a little bit, a little bit more often, often, because it's good to scratch where you itch. Wonderful. Well, next Sunday we will be looking at the Word made flesh, the doctrine of the incarnation. Before we move into the five o'clock Christmas um, concert, and then after that Sunday, the five o'clock Christmas carol service. God bless you all. Amen. Thank you, Bruce. That was awesome. You